Welcome to the Wadsworth Public Library podcast. This episode is the fifth in a six-part series covering the history, stories, landmarks, and traditions of Wadsworth, Ohio. This live recorded presentation is of local historian Roger Havens as he walks us through the book, Wadsworth Heritage, by Eleanor Shapiro. If this is your first time listening, be sure to check out the previous episodes in this series as the class moves chronologically through history and builds off the previous subjects. Yeah, I got contacted by a realtor that is in the process of selling the old, uh, what people called the Flair factory. And I skipped over that because that was part of the Ohio, Ohio Match Company. And it's located uh, right there at the bend of Grandview before you pop down to uh, State Street. So the he wanted to know the history behind the building. And the history was during World War One, um, they had that they called it the chemical plant built and they were going to mix their own chemicals for the matches or whatever they use chemicals for in the Ohio companies. And they thought that uh, during the World War I, there would be a problem getting some of these essential chemicals in combination. So they were going to combine their own. And obviously they set it way away from the match factory just in case any type of explosion or something like that would happen. It wouldn't be right next door. So it's really um, right next to Memorial Park. Because remember, the Ohio Match Company owned a property that Memorial Park set on and the Wadsworth Stadium, all that property across Grandview, Mm -hmm. and as well as where the flare plant was. So they really ended up... Sounds like a strange story, but they ended up, I think, mixing chemicals for a while. Then they moved the chemical plant or that process down to the salt company down in Ripman. So maybe they really wanted to keep it away from the match company. So they started making up their chemicals down in Ripman. So then it kind of set idle. And then in World War II, it appears that the Diamond Match Company bought it, which... I found unusual because the Diamond Match Company and the Ohio Match Company didn't always see eye to eye and Diamond Match Company was always suing the Ohio Match Company uh, for what they felt was uh, encroaching on their their different patents and things like that. But anyway, they ended up with it. And so during World War II, they made flares and the flares were used by the military and uh, I think theirs were the ground flares which means they put them in some type of rifle or converted rifle and they would shoot them up in the air and they would explode and depending on the color they were color coded and that would indicate to the people fighting on the ground or even up above well what, what the orders were and so they call it I think this one made the green the green ones, although I think they made all sorts of colors, but the green ones they used during um, the Normandy invasion. So they were shot up in the air and the green ones indicated that they either needed the military people at that site or whatever the signal that they told them it would be ahead of time. Saying, you know, if it's red, that means to do such and such. If it's green, do such and such. So 
That's how it got named the flare plant. So I told him, you know, I had a couple of articles on it. It does appear on page 148 in the book. Because it's mixed in with um, the match company, it's easy to skim over. Uh, and again, it was part of the match company there for a while. But if you're interested in in that particular building, right now what's in it um, is the popcorn place, the the popcorn, that gourmet popcorn that's made in Wadsworth. They're... they're uh, setup is in there but this guy was telling me that uh, the second floor <laughs> he said the ceiling height is like 39 feet that's huge you know it's like four in here like a 10 foot ceiling and then four times that much so I don't know what they were making in there the, the flares were just little objects uh, flares were also used and dropped out of planes too but these particular ones, I think, were the ones that were shot out of the uh, rifle. Okay, so so we went through all those pictures in that one section, and I just kind of reinforced what they they were. So then you're at like page two hundred and nine, just beyond these pictures, they're black and white pictures, and there it talks about different organizations in town and when they started so I just jotted them down here and on 209 it talks about the um, Lions Club and that was started in 1925 it's about halfway down my list oh I guess I started right before those pictures on page 207 where it says the women organized and then they had the their first formal organization was the FPA called the Followers of Pallas Athena. Pallas Athena, yeah. I don't know the lady, but uh, they followed them. And so the guys in town kind of kidded them and said, well, FPA means 40 pretty angels because there were 40 members of women. So I'm not sure that uh, that was a compliment or derogatory. <laughs> but they're the ones that uh, donated the original, the boy with the leaky boot. And the original one was over here in North Park across from Ann's Bakery in that strip of land when it was a lot bigger. And interesting enough, it mentions it in here, except the author doesn't call it the boy with the leaky boot. They, she calls it the uh, boy holding a turtle. <laughs> and I read that. Well, what happened was somebody snapped off the boot. So the kid is standing there, supposedly holding a boot, but it got snapped off. So his hand looks like this with a hollow space in it. And for whatever reason, people forgot what it really was. So they thought it looked like he was holding a turtle. So that's mentioned in there. So don't let that throw you off. Um, but that was put out in 1910. And they no longer exist in Wadsworth as far as that uh, club. Now, I think it's this art and history class. Does anybody belong to that? Okay, and that's what they still call it, the art and history, because I got called uh, by um, somebody because you were celebrating your 100th birthday, or you wanted to, and then COVID hit. Yeah. So it would have been 2021 when you're... And Actually, in the book, it's 12, 1912. Yeah, the book says, and that's what I know. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you know what? Yeah, you're right, 1912. I'm dyslexic. <laughs>
Uh, the Rotary Club started in 1925, Lions Club 1925, uh, Wadsworth Chapter of the Red Cross that was organized right be or right during or at the beginning of World War One, and that was 1917. The American Legion Post 170, and I am thinking that that 170 represents in order. So we were the 170th nationwide the 170th American Legion. And that was organized by Fred Falk. And Fred Falk was part of the family that owned the um, cement house up there that they took down for the new CIS building. So the Schaefer, the old Schaefer house, some people call it that. The original family was Miller. You had the Millers that lived there, the Hartmans that lived there, the Schaefers that lived there. And they were connected into the Cyberling family. So anyway, and his is the one who, whose dad fought in the Civil War. Actually, he was a medic. And he got injured there towards the end of the war, came back, married his sweetheart. She got pregnant, and he died of the old Civil War wound. So he never really knew his father. Um, well, he never knew him because... Fred Jr. was born right after his father's death. Uh, the VFW uh, post-1089, it was founded in 1933, and the Ladies' Auxiliary post-1089 was 1934. So I just listed some of these because they had them listed in here. And then it goes into the post office at the bottom of page 209. All right, so the post office, just a quick history of the post office. I think the original post office was, you know, earlier on, people just worked out of their, or the postmaster worked out of their home. And so there was one somewhere out, I think, on uh, Diagonal Road, Medina Road, there where the three-way stop is there on College Street and then head north. So eventually they moved it into town and it went into the, the first town hall we had. So I guess that was an appropriate place to put it in town hall. And then later, they moved it over to the, I'll call it the Ladrick Building. You may know it as that. It's the one over here. Uh, Guthrie's in there now, the dentist. But you can see here in the picture that says Wadsworth Post Office. Uh, I think at another time, well, yeah, at another time, time it was in a office building where the citizens bank is today there was a bank there before and so they kept moving around until finally they got the post office the old post office it's still there on broad street and uh that was 1937 that they built this and then finally they built the one behind it and that's what we have today so that kind of covers um through 211. Gosh, we go back to the churches again. And again, I'm not going to go through and rehash all these churches because a lot of them are the same churches, just in a different time frame. Uh, talked about the Hungarian Baptist Church. Did we talk about that? It's on Chestnut Street. Now it's called the Chestnut Street Church. And um, it's still there. It's a tiny church. It's not any bigger than the St. Mark's Church over here. And uh, so, you know, there were a lot of Hungarians that, Hungarians and Italians were the 
I guess, the, the most of the immigrants at that time, and they came to work in the factories. And the Hungarians didn't have their own church with their own language and that type of thing. So Pete Baxo had that church. Here's Pete Baxo. Now, he has an interesting story, and I guess the kids enjoy hearing this story because I can scare them. But Pete Baxo, his family was from Hungary. They migrated to um, the United States and then into Cleveland, and they were searching newspapers, trying to find jobs, and they saw where we were hiring a lot of people at the companies here in Wadsworth. And his family, he was a teenager at the time. They moved to Wadsworth. Uh, the dad got a job, I believe, at the match company. And then their son, who's pictured here, he got a job at the train station. And so he was just a common laborer. He lifted up the ties and carried them to where they needed to be placed and uh, hammered in the spikes. And uh, that was his job. Well, unfortunately for him, one day he was working on the railroad and he was carrying one of those iron rails and he got a sliver in his finger from the metal. Well, this is back in the early 1900s and penicillin was not discovered yet. So he didn't think twice about it, but then it began getting infected and the infection then turned into blood poisoning and then it started moving up his arm and so the doctors had to amputate his arm. And so once they amputated it to stop the spread, of course, then he went back and they said, well, we can't use you anymore. You're no good to us. You're disabled. And that was your right hand, your right-handed person, and you're unemployable now as far as they're concerned. And, you know, labor laws or the lack of labor laws, they could get away with that. Well, he was persistent and he kept going back to the train station asking, do you have a job? I'll do anything. You know, I just... And I said, well, again, you only have one arm. What are we going to do with a one-armed guy? Finally, when uh, automobiles became more popular and they bricked the street from downtown Wadsworth down to the railroad tracks for the new car, newfangled cars, they felt that at that point they needed a crossing guard at the railroad tracks. And you could do that. You could hold up the sign with his left hand that directs the traffic to stop. And it was important down there on Main Street because if you look to the west or kind of the southwest, you can't see those trains until they start coming around that rock cut. And that's maybe 100 yards away. So, you know, people were dependent on listening. And if they weren't listening to hear the, the uh, train whistle. So anyway, he was doing his job of stopping traffic as the trains were headed in and watching for the signals and one of the neighborhood little girls was coming down the street and she uh, was carrying a pail of milk her mother told her here take this pail of milk down to auntie that lives across the railroad tracks and so he knew who she was her name was lois shelley just like shelley glass and so she started ambling down the street well he detected a train coming and he told her, you know, he, he was on the opposite side of the uh, tracks. And he told her, you know, 
stop, there's a, uh, a train coming. She thought he was just playing with her. So instead of doing what she was told, she just kept laughing and, you know, started getting faster because she liked the guy and wanted to get down there to talk to him. So she doesn't listen. She starts running with that, that pail of milk. And he's trying to stop her and trying to stop her. In the meantime, the train does see her and they lock on the brake, but they're going 35 miles an hour through that, which doesn't sound like it's very fast, but those big long trains, it takes a long distance to stop them. So there's no way they're going to stop. So the wheels are squealing. She finally looks up. This train is coming right, right at her and suddenly, boom! crash and burn. Fortunately, what got hit was her pail of milk because Pete Baxo, as he saw her because she tripped on the tracks and fell down in front of the train, he ran out and with his one good arm, he scooped her up and pulled her off and they felt nothing but the wind of the train rushing by. Wow. So he saved her life, basically. And, uh, so he was awarded the Carnegie Medal of Honor for doing that. And with that, he got a money stipend. I think like, I mean, back then that was a tremendous amount of money, like $4,000. So this is back in 1912-ish. So he took the money and he built himself a building down the south end. And you'll see, yeah, and it's, it's Baxo, B-A-C-S-O. It's not the chocolate syrup that, I had as a kid and so many people misprinted all the time and in fact I was proofreading something that uh, a guy was putting together and he put Basco <laughs> but anyway so he built that building it's still standing there you can see it from uh, water main right across the street it says Baxo up in the um, dated stone and so he sold pretty much general goods back in those days. And eventually the kids took over the business and they would sell coal. Um, they continued to sell some food and some clothing. But he was a successful businessman and he didn't have to work for the railroad anymore. His house is this one that you should see down on uh, Main Street again. You could see it through the window of the um, Main Street, or Water Main. And then he also donated the money to have the church built there on Chestnut Street. And that's what it looks like. Looks a little different today, but not a big church, but he at least helped um, get his people their own church. So that's kind of a neat story. I'm not sure where that... Well, under churches, because that's one of the first ones they listed there, the Hungarian Baptist Church on page 212. And it talks about Peter Baxo, the Main Street merchant, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that talks about the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army has always been in the south end of town up until they moved it up onto College Street. So here's a picture of it in its day. Um, and I always find it ironic, you know, they, they keep talking about rebuilding it. And now, of course, they're going to rebuild it there on the uh, east side of the building. They tore the old house down that they bought. But uh, I always told them, I said, you know, you guys keep 
looking for you know the ideal place to put it and the ideal place to put it is in the south end and when it was down at the south end it was very much used and active because the people could walk to it now for them to walk to it uh, because many of them don't have cars they'd have to walk from the south end all the way up and down college street so anyway that's what it looked like this is when it was down at the corner of uh, state street and main street there at the light now it's a parking lot there so it was there where west's food market used to be and then west of course moved across the street so we're on page 213 talking about the salvation army i will now go to oh the christian and missionary alliance church which is now called freshwater so its history in town is it started out on park street which is off of south lyman it's as you go down south lyman at the base of the hill it's that road that goes to the left where the teacher parking lot is along there there was an old wooden building there that was um where the church was located in its day and then um eventually they built the new one on humboldt now it's turning into like a ukrainian church that's what the sign says now there by derling park and then from there of course they moved out on hartman road and changed the name to freshwater and ironically the only reason i'm kind of mentioning it is the so that original tabernacle tabernacle was located there on park street and it was a big wooden building that went up in flames at one point but it also served as the location where our local Ku Klux Klan held their meetings. Go figure. Um, so anyway, not that they're connected to the Ku Klux Klan, but they shared the same building. And maybe that's why it went up in flames. Who knows? Yeah, the first church of the Nazarene. Um, that one... Now, the easiest part to start their story is the KSC Hall there on North Lyman. That was built as the Nazarene Church. And then, of course, they moved up uh, to the High Street, and now it's called the Now Church. So that's kind of the history behind it. And the next page, um, the Full Gospel Church, the First Assembly of God. This particular church doesn't have a whole lot of history but um it was located well if you go in the south end and you get to pine street and go from pine street to chestnut street there's kind of an open gap there at the corner of pine and main and it's set right there and it looked more like a house than anything else and and I'm not sure what really happened to it. If it fused with some others and why they took it down, I don't know. Uh, maybe it burned down. Anyway, it talks about that church. The First Methodist Church, it has the longest history in Wadsworth. And again, its first church was located there at uh, CIS at the OJ Work parking lot. And it started out as a wooden structure that was hauled down and then eventually a brick structure was put in there and eventually the schools bought it and turned it into the annex building they called it for central school 
uh, because they built their newest one then on the lot where um, E.J. Young had his house. So they bought his old house, had it taken down, and then they built the church there. Then, of course, you know, the rest of the history is his son built that Cotswold English house there at the corner of East Street and Broad Street, and the Methodists bought it and hauled it down for parking because nobody wanted, nobody could afford to do anything with that house. <laughs> they tried to, they couldn't even give it away um, because it was so expensive to, to both move and also to repair that uh, unique roof that was on it. All right, um, the next one, the Church of Christ on page 218, which is now the first Christian church. And again, it was a disciple church in its beginning, and James A. Garfield preached there, and that's where he met uh, the Hinsdales and the Pardee family and made pretty much lifelong friends with them. The original first Christian church, the original wooden church, was built the same year as St. Mark's Church, and that was 1842. And then in 1915, they added the basement to it. Just like in St. Mark's, I think it was like 1915, they added a basement to St. Mark's. Otherwise, they were just setting flat on the ground, basically, or on uh, sandstone foundations. And then the high church on page 219, uh, that's out on Eastern Road, out there by the Silver Run uh, Winery. And they call it the High Church, not because it sets up on that hillside and has a beautiful view. It's because when they built, I think it was the second, they put a balcony in it. And that was kind of unique for churches to have a balcony where people could sit and view. And so they called it the High Church because of the high balcony in it. I think you could get away with saying it's because it's up on the top of the hill. But that's the church in its history. It was the one you're looking at today is the third one built. And each one was built in a different corner. And ironically, that's where Summit County, Wayne County, and Medina County come together. So when it was in the one side of the road, it was in Wayne County. Well, it's in Wayne County right now. When it was on the one side of the road, it was in Medina County. And when it was in the other side of the road, it was in Summit County. So this church has been built three times and each time in a different county. <laughs> so I'm sure there's not too many churches in the world that fall under that category. Uh, the Jerusalem Church is up on Acme Hill. That's on page 219 if you're interested in that history. The old order of the Mennonite Church is the one up on... Seville Road at the corner of Mennonite Road and uh, Seville Road. And it's interesting to read the, the family names in it. You know, most of these churches, especially these smaller churches, are just composed of a handful of families and their extended family. So you'll see the Hearst name, and they're the ones that run the Acme Market up on top of the hill. The Hearst, the Goods, and the Goods, of course, you have Good Road just down the road. And the Roars and the Coppices, the Coppice family. So their name comes up a lot in the Old Order. Then they had a split off because part of the congregation wanted to start a Sunday school and the other conservative part said, we're not doing a Sunday school. So they split off and they built their church just beyond it, not eh, about a quarter of a mile farther up the hill. And it's the Bethel Church now, I forget what they call it. 
Um, they changed the name of it. But it was a split off of the old order. So with that church, you don't see all the black cars parked around it on church days like you do with the old order. Uh, the people aren't all dressed in black and blues. They just look like regular people. <laughs> and those names that appear in there are the Criters and the Roars and the Leathermans. So they were kind of the split out group. Then you have the first Mennonite church. So they were probably the most liberal of all of them. And they're the ones that um, uh, the Huntsberger families and the Shelley families and that sort of thing, they're the ones that also brought the first Mennonite college in the United States to Wadsworth to be built. <laughs> and uh, they uh, started out, they had their own wooden church out on Wadsworth Road, the old entrance to the hospital down that way and if you drive down that you'll see on the left hand side or which would be the west side of the road you'll see there's cemetery still there but the church is gone it was a wooden structure and they just outgrew it and it wasn't worth saving so I don't know what happened to it in the end uh, it either got hauled down and repurposed or something but they couldn't move the cemetery but they did move the church and that's when they bought the uh, St. Mark's Church downtown and moved into it and then they eventually outgrew that church and they built the one out on Treese Road so that's kind of how the, they progressed and uh, those names uh, the Shelley family and uh, Huntsberger family they were kind of the movers and shakers at that time in fact a lot of the um, several of the instructors at the college his last name was Shelley so I find it interesting that the Shelleys all live along that strip from where old Isham school was headed west and you have Shelley Glass you have you now the Wolfs they were part of the Shelley family that uh, lived there yeah they pretty much occupied all those houses from there down to Holmesbrook okay then in uh, on page 223, the Trinity Church, that's the one that uh, started out, they they started out with a, well, it's it said the frame structure was 1873, and that would be on the same location of where Trinity is today, and they took it down, disassembled it, and a guy named John Lysey bought all the materials from it, or maybe he got it free just for hauling it away, and then he built an apartment house over by Durling Park and painted it yellow and they just called it the Big Pumpkin House. So it talks about that on page 223. Uh, talks about the Opera House and again I already talked about the Opera House that was located uh, where that barbecue restaurant is. So yeah it was a big wooden structure and you know they, they last so long, and then if they're not kept up, they, they quickly uh, disintegrate. I think most towns had an opera house because that was their form of entertainment before theaters. But then motion pictures came in and took over a lot of the opera houses, and, and they eventually went out of style. Page 226 talks about the First Baptist Church. This was the black church, and I put pictures up of it. They called it originally the Rising Mount Zion. 
Zion Baptist Church. Yeah, it looks like it had some additions on it, but of course the black people at the time when they eventually moved into Wadsworth from the coal, working at the coal mines, they settled there along Mill Street and uh, Kyle Street. And there was one lady there, we have a picture of her up in the museum, Lucy Lee, I think most of them just nickname her Grandma or, uh, or they just called her Lucy. But it's interesting because she did an interview for the Beacon Journal at one time and she was actually a slave herself on a plantation down south. And she said she really didn't mind it. I mean, it was a way of life, but it did get complicated after the Civil War because all those slaves were released and they didn't have jobs. So they had to seek out what they could find, and that's what attracted them to Wadsworth when they sent representatives from the coal companies down there to brag about how much they could make working in the coal mines, and they puffed it up, and all these uh, black people decided, wow, you know, I can get 50 cents a ton for digging out coal. I could do a couple of tons a day. <laughs> and to them, that was going to be rich. Till they got here and found out that they were actually strike breakers. And so they weren't welcomed in town. So um, Mr. Loomis, who owned the, a lot of the coal companies here in Wandsworth, he had a compound built out pretty much close to where Dana Miller's uh, peanut place is. If you've ever gone to Dana Miller's or the Old Stone Jail bar that's there. So he built a compound for them to live in that had, you know, fencing around it to protect them from the whites and trying to lynch, it, lynch them. So they had accommodations for them. And in fact, I think they even had schools within the, the stockade that they built. And uh, so they would walk down over the hill and jump on one of the uh, rail cars, which would then bring him up to Wadsworth, all the way to the north end of Wadsworth. So down along Silver Creek, the actual creek. Um, yeah, the, the train spur ran off the main line here in Wadsworth and meandered down pretty much where that trans, the electric transfer station is out there along uh, Silver Creek Road. So the train went down through there and went down to Rogues Hollow uh, to all those coal mines there out of Doylestown. And, yeah, from my understanding, I don't know if it mentions it in here, that uh, this building um, that was built there at the corner of Kyle and Mills, that uh, money was contributed by at least the Lutheran Church here in Wadsworth and maybe the Methodists, too. But they helped them out with the building structure, and I kind of believe that they did it just to make sure... They didn't. They, they stayed in their place. I hate to say it, but I think that's what they did. They got them a building so they wouldn't meander into their their churches. Okay, so uh, Grace Lutheran Church. We won't rehash that one. But when it was built, it had seats for 500 people, and with another 200 standing room or setting up chairs there along the sides of the church. So these churches were the mega churches of their day. And now, unfortunately, they're kind of going to the wayside. And then you're getting these other mega churches built out in the country. And I guess it's just the rise and fall of the way things work. Um, page 229 talks about Dr. Etter. 
he was pretty much instrumental in getting the new church built. Not he himself, but he was the preacher there at the Lutheran church and just very dedicated to it and went through that whole process of building. And by the way, while they were building the the Grace Lutheran Church, uh, they held their services in the old uh, gymnasium of the match shop. And the gymnasium is on Garfield. So right where the Moose parking lot is, if you park in that parking lot and look to the uh, west, there's a building there, and that was their gymnasium. So they had it, I guess, for entertainment, for exercise. A lot of boxing matches were held in that particular facility that uh, was the form of entertainment back in uh, those days. In fact, I think at least one person was killed during the boxing match. I mean, it got so bad that... uh, or they got injured so bad. So Dr. Etter, again, he kind of followed through with that whole process. And again, the biggest donors to that the current church was E.J. Young and his cousin, Nathan Everhard. And Nathan Everhard's wife was Ella Everhard, who bought the house that's set here. And she bought it and donated the city of Wadsworth. And that was our first official library. So the Ella M. Everhard Library, if you remember that name. Uh, and again, she it wasn't their house. She bought it, and she bought it from the estate of Dr. Leader, who uh, was a dentist that uh, um, had his business in this big house here. And, and Sacred Heart Church on page 230. Um, not a whole lot new from the last thing. Did want to say that um, down in the cemetery, whether you, you probably know this already, but Sacred Heart has its own section of the Woodlawn Cemetery. It pretty much runs along Beck Street. And so they purchased that land for the Catholics to be buried. And now it's extended um, farther to the north. And pretty much uh, follows that. And if you're ever in that... And, Maybe somebody brought it up here, but um, if you're ever in that section, which is where Renacy and Tony Perry are buried, or not buried, but um, some are buried, some are waiting to be buried, I guess. But anyway, there's a tombstone there that's kind of tall, and I think it might even be kind of angled cut. And there's a hole in it up towards the top. You could see through it which is weird in itself, but you got to visit it because it's uh, for, um, it's the Beck family. I can't even think of his first, Bill Beck. Bill Beck. Yeah, Bill Beck. So anyway, uh, his wife passed away, so they had that tombstone put up, and they have that hole in it, and it has a little message above the hole saying, look through this hole, you know, basically face gone to the east, and you'll see the house that we lived in for X number of years. And sure enough, you stand there and look through it, and it's directly to the, the back of the house of where they lived. So when you're thinking about getting a tombstone, you may want to get creative like that. I mean, who else would come up with an idea like that? 
Now, I don't widely advertise it because I don't want little kids running up there and stepping all over the thing trying to look up through because you have to really be an adult to be able to see through that hole unless you climb on the actual tombstone. So uh, then we get into the public schools, and the school history gets complicated. So, you know, when um, Wadsworth Township was developed, you know, they, they went through that plan where the township is divided into 12 different sections. So each section out in the country eventually was supposed to have their own one-room schoolhouse to provide the, the education for their section. And again, back in those days, it was just first through sixth grade is all they had. And so all these one-room schoolhouses, so there were supposed to be 12 of them. There were only actually 10 because two of them merged for whatever reason. So two of them merged together, so put it down to 10. A lot of these old one-room schoolhouses, well, they started out as wooden schoolhouses. Some of them started out as cabins and uh, then planked wood. And then for some of them, they switched them out to a brick structure to be more permanent. And so the ones that come to mind, they're still standing is there's one out the intersection of Reimer and uh, 57, where you get to that goofy intersection out there. And if you look to the south, you'll see that there's a brick one-room schoolhouse there that has an addition on it. Uh, one out by um, uh, the Bigelow one is Medina Line Road and Akron Road. And it's kind of hard to see because they have a lot of evergreens in front of it. But that one's still standing. Then the one, and I know I mentioned this before, across from that uh, church there on Reimer Road, right before you get to the rock cut, uh, Bonita Road. So there's one still standing there. Uh, there's one out on Wall Road, on the west end of Wall Road, where the Jones family, I think they still live there. But it's a wooden one. That's the only wooden one left in Wadsworth, and it sets out by the road. It's where Newcomer Road comes in and intersects with... Uh, Wall Road. So when you drive by it, I think it still has the cupola on it, but they convert it to a shed. Oh, and one other one that I can think of off the top of my head is there on Johnson Road, where if you go out Silver Creek Road and you're headed south, then you turn left on Johnson Road, and there's a now it's an exercise place. It used to be the Wadsworth Furniture out there in the country. And right before you get to it, on right, right next to it, is a house that people live in, and that was a one-room schoolhouse. It's getting a little bit dilapidated. But interesting enough, I'm hoping you guys can visualize where I'm at here. So if you continue on Johnson Road and go beyond the old furniture place, which is now, like I say, an exercise place, there was a bridge then that got over to the other side. Now it's a dip down. Well, the reason they had the bridge is because the train spur went underneath right along Silver Creek. Creek, And uh, so I have old pictures of it where, uh, where yeah, there was a bridge that spanned that dip. And that was the, the train spur that went down into Rogue's Hollow to collect the coal to bring it up to the main line. Um, so the only picture I put up here because... Like I say, it could get really complicated. So if you look at this part of that picture, 
This is the original Mennonite college. So then after the Mennonites uh, gave up on it, then it turned into a normal school. And what they did is they put an addition on here uh, to allow more like dormitory. So people who wanted to go into the teaching profession, which is a normal school, they could stay in residence there. And notice they have a bell tower here. So that bell tower was added, I think when it was still a Mennonite school, but or college. But anyway, that was the old bell that used to set in front of old Isham School. I don't know if you ever noticed it out in the front yard, but I always wondered what that bell was. And it was probably during your reign where you gave up that bell to the Mennonites and they hauled it out to, I think, Bluffton College because I think Bluffton is the one that really took the place of the Wadsworth Mennonite College. So they gave it back. They had a little ceremony and somehow got that bell moved out there. They went through, uh, I think, Pastor Moore uh, when he was active in the Mennonite. So anyway, so when the normal college closed, this thing was abandoned for a while. So there was a, a big push to get rid of all the one-room schoolhouses and get all these kids together. And so there was legislation passed through. Uh, I mean, Wadsworth Township tried to do it on their own, and there were just some people that says, there's no way we want our local one-room schoolhouse down the road. But then legislation in Ohio kind of forced them to fuse them together, kind of like what goes on nowadays, just in a whole different manner. So they took all, everybody who went to those one-room schoolhouses out in the country, and they put them together down here, and they called it the Wadsworth Township School. So if you lived out of the, outside of the city limits or the village limits of Wadsworth, which means you live beyond West Street, you live beyond Akron Road, you live beyond, beyond um, I think at the time it, it could have been East Street or partway up Broad Street, uh, but a very defined area. And even Akron Road, it could be North Street going up towards Akron Road. But anyway, they centralized all those one-room schoolhouses into one building. So people called it centralized, which makes it confusing because you had central school downtown. But centralized and central school, that's the difference between them. This was all the one-room schoolhouse. Kids were combined in there. And so you can see all these kids out front. You could also see the um, wagons that they were brought in, the horse-drawn wagons. Those were the school buses. And they said one of the worst places for those the guy that got the uh, getting west of town had the worst part going up and down Holmesbrook Hill, especially because, you know, it wasn't paved. So in the wintertime, it was purely mud. It was like they had to get all the kids out of the wagon and walk next, next to it until they got up or down that hill. So anyway, so they centralized. They called it Wadsworth Township School and... It went from first grade to 10th grade, I believe. And then the 11th and 12th graders, they had an agreement with Wadsworth City Schools that they could all attend together down at the central school downtown Wadsworth. So 
the city kids and the country kids eventually merged and that went on into the 50s i think of that setup well probably so and then of course they um you know as the city limits grew out it started absorbing the schools or uh central centralized school and so they had to come up with a different plan and in 1957 that school was declared and again it, it had been replaced with the the old Isham school at that point so that structure went in in 1957 and it became part of the Wadsworth City Schools and the guy that was going to be the superintendent of that school because he had been principal all the way up to this point uh, he had a heart attack and died before the school even <coughs> opened, right before the school opened. And so they memorialized him by naming the school Isham School. His name was Vernon Isham. So he never got to do the new school, but he did the transition from the old into the new building. Or as the new building was being built, he helped keep things stabilized. And then he died. So I saw his tombstone the other day down in Woodlawn Cemetery. It's closer to West Street uh, where he's buried. And when I was taking a picture of it, the one thing that stood out in my mind is that he died the same year his daughter died. So it had me kind of wondering, and of course, who do I go to but Dr. Carino? And I said, you know, here's kind of a phenomenon that I don't quite understand. So here, their only child, he and his wife, so only child was a girl that had some kind of debilitating issue in life. I think she may have been bedridden all her life. And of course they had to do everything for this little girl as she grew up. And uh, basically it was a 24 hour caretakers. And she died and he died right after. So it could be, you know, what they call dying of a broken heart because he spent all that time because he was, um, I think, maybe around 60 years old. It wasn't, and she was like 40, I, I forget. But um, anyway, it's just kind of sad to see that that happened. So anyway, so that's how Isham School got its name. That's how some people will still refer to uh, Isham as centralized. As you can see, you know, when they were tearing down old Isham School, people said, well, you know, that was a college. My gosh, you know what? <laughs> um, this was the college. This is what it looked like. This is what the normal school looked like. This is what centralized looked like. But then it, it started crumbling and a lot of issues took place. And so they decided that uh, they needed to build new. Okay, so the story about Isham School is on page uh, 235. Then the downtown school, it was called the Union School originally until they uh, rebuilt it in 1907 and just called it Central School. When it was built, it housed grades 1 through 11. 12th grade didn't come in. That wasn't mandatory until I think uh, a few years after that. Same with kindergarten. Kindergarten came in, I think, in the 1920s. But um, so the Union School got outgrown. It got hauled down. And uh, 
then central was put in. Like I say, it was originally 1 through 11, then it became 1 through 12, then it came K through 12. And in the meantime, in 1915, they had outgrown that new building, and that's when they built Old Lincoln and Old Franklin, and they pulled out uh, grades 1 through 4. They were a four-room school when they were first built. So Franklin had four rooms, Lincoln had four rooms, then they kept adding on to it because they only had one of each grade at that time for the whole town. So then when they stepped it up, but, you know, they had to pull out those those kids to make room for the older kids in the central. So that's kind of the way that progressed. Okay, so starting on page 238, and there's going to be a lot of pages here we're going to skip because it talks about um, who the veterans were from Wadsworth that uh, served in the military. Uh, the, Mex the Mexican War of 1916, it lists the names of uh, the, who served, and they had it broken down by officers and privates for that war. Then World War I, kind of the same thing. Gosh, I was going to say in some of these, they have them um, in alphabetical order, but evidently not, not this. Um, I know when it gets to the Civil War and some of those, and it looks like like the privates here on page uh, 240, they're in alphabetical order based on last name. So the privates of um, World War One are listed. And again, obviously I'm not going to go through all these names, but... Um, it's just showing that this section lists the people that they're aware of who served and that uh, lived in Wadsworth or at least in 1964 had a connection to Wadsworth. That's when they printed this book. So it gets you to page three or 245. It talks about the Wadsworth chapter of the American Red Cross. I mentioned earlier it was started in 1917, and it was a big thing in Wadsworth. And again, it seems like Wadsworth has always had a very generous town. Uh, they had a big auction for World War I where they were raising money. And they set the goal to raise $10,000. I mean, imagine that back in 1918. $10,000 in today's money. So they had an auction downtown where people brought in anything and everything to auction off. They were bringing in chickens. They were bringing in goats. They were bringing in cows. They were bringing um, farm implements. Anything people could donate, they brought to town. Pies, cakes, and they were auctioned off. The results were they received $14,000 in their drive. So their goal was 10000 which sound you know impossible, and they ended up doing 14000 In fact, the auctioneer ended up removing his collar and tie and was auctioning it off. So, <laughs> so then uh, the Red Cross became important then during the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918 and 19. So they helped out with wherever they could help out during that. And as we know, <laughs> going through our own epidemic with that all involved. So then World War II, again, they had another drive. And let's see. Well, they, they did their drive selling whatever. 
And there again, they raised $14,568 for the cause. And they also uh, organized the ladies to make comfort bags for the veterans overseas that they would send over. And just having toiletries and various things that they, they would need. Uh, page 248 is the start of World War II. And the one thing I wanted to point out there is that uh, we had a person from Wadsworth who died during the attack on Pearl Harbor. His name was Horace Messam, M-E-S-S-A-M. So he was in the Air Force and was working that day, I think, doing mechanic work, and he got a direct hit by one of the bombs. And uh, so he perished during that. We have a picture of him in the museum in the military room. And then on page 249, it talks about the 28 Wadsworth men who made the supreme sacrifice. And their names are listed. And again, I think I referenced um, that at the last meeting we had and how there were 28 trees, magnolia trees, planted at Memorial Park in their memory. And a lot of them are still living. I didn't go down to count to see how many's left, but there's a lot of them left. And they were absolute beautiful. I showed you a picture of it at the last meeting. So then, <clears throat> for the next couple of pages, they list everybody who served in World War II that were originally from Wadsworth. And then the Korean conflict starts at page 254. List those names. That talks about the Veterans Organization, the... American Legion, and how they started out just shortly after World War I. And again, Fred Falk, he had a shoe store downtown, uh, it says on the west side of Main Street. So he kind of organized it in his place of business. And eventually they, they moved across the street to the where they are today. And they kind of were the organization that started the downtown festival, the Wadsworth Week. And they would hold it downtown, pretty much behind the Legion, that parking lot back here by the H.J. Hall, and also in the front lawn of Central School. And they had a lot of gambling there. They did a lot of bingo and all these games of chance. And they were making tons of money off of them. But then I think, uh, you know, the way things work, a good thing doesn't last very long. That I, whether it was the city or the state, you know, started coming down on all these um, kind of gambling type events and uh, shut them down. In fact, the VFW, if you didn't know this, they used to own the Colony Bowling Alley. That was their first uh, doctor. <laughs> Klotz had it built right after World War Two, and it had a roller skating rink on the down in the basement, and then they had the bowling alley up top. He eventually sold it, and the VFW bought it. And within a couple of years, they had it paid off, which amazed me on how they did that. So I asked one of the old guys, "Yeah, I said, uh, so how did you guys?" And and my dad was always a member of it. He was a World War II vet. But, of course, I never was interested in its history until after he passed away. And so I said, so how? what was the key component of that? And he just made the motion of 
pulling down an arm of a one-armed bandit. So they had slot machines. They were allowed slot machines in these places. And he said, you know, it was all gambling money. But they were able to burn the mortgage after like two years. And it was the same thing with the Legion. They bought that building over there within a couple of years. And again, it was holding that event that was all money-type uh, gambling. And it was a good thing. And then the government put a kibosh to it. Now they've allowed gambling to come back into those places, but none of that money can be used by those organizations. They have to donate it to a nonprofit. They can't use it, you know, as a building fund or anything like that. Now, it's interesting how it works, but uh, yeah, you can gamble now. You just have to give the money away. Okay, so Korea War, American Legion, the Auxiliary. The VFW, post 1089 on page 257. Then I told you about the colony and the purchase of it. So that's on page 258. Gives you the history of that colony. Talks about the VFW, post 1089. And then we're in book four. And again, in this section too, um, not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but it does have interesting components to it. A statistic they they bore out 1940, so that would have been you know pre World War II. The population of Wadsworth was 6,500. Then in 1950, getting post World War II, you're up to 8,000, and then in 1960 it was up to 10,500, and so now we're over 20,000. But uh, it shows how those decades really. You know, the baby baby boom age. Uh, <clears throat> and that's when all the allotments, or not all, but many of the allotments popped up all through town. So it talks about on page 261. And then on page 262, it says no row houses. Well, row houses you would find in Barberton and places like that. All the houses looking the same as they're being built more for the affordable housing let's put it that way i think that's the way they state it now um but what they found out was 50 percent of wadsworth even back in the 60s that 50 percent were people lived here were in professions and 50 percent were laborers so we started becoming a commute or a bedroom community is what i want to say and that people from who worked in akron lived in wadsworth barberton etc and our 50% of the labor force was still working in the factories here in the South End, for the most part. So it was a good balance. And I think it continues to be a pretty good balance. And it does describe in there that, you know, besides Highland Avenue, there really wasn't, well, Highland Avenue and, uh, and North, kind of in that section. We really didn't have any rit ritzy houses you know, if you go to some of the Cleveland suburbs and their old communities, they have huge mansions and things like that. We really didn't have that except for Highland Avenue, and it developed off the Lyman property. And uh, it was a result of, because E.J. Young lived out the end of the street on Broad Street, and all the executives or people who wanted to look or sound to be somebody, they wanted to live close to him to say, oh, yeah, you know, E.J. Young, he's my neighbor you know, two blocks away, but anyway, that's how those houses became, you know, not huge, but very, very nicely built. 
Yeah, and interesting enough, I think I mentioned this before, this street out here, uh, Broad Street, at least we're sitting here, it's Broad Street. If you're sitting at St. Mark's, you know, it's College Street. If you're sitting past 57, now it's Greenwich Road. And it's just amazing. And before that, it was Benjamin Franklin Highway. So this was the highway that went through until 76 was built and it bypassed Wadsworth. But uh, that's another name of that route, Benjamin Franklin Highway. Uh, also Route 97, you could call it, because that is its... So when you're reading this book, and I'll mention like Route 97, you're trying to figure out what street is that? Choose a name because you're liable to hit it sooner or later. <laughs> it was also um, Route 548, I believe, at one time. So, yeah, it's, it's morphed into a lot of things. So it talks about Westview subdivision on page 263. And the West View is here at the west end of town around Treese Road. And the West View was looking out over the um, Holmesbrook Valley that meandered down through there. So now, of course, the city limits is pushed out a little bit farther. <clears throat> Page 264, Sunnyside East, Wadsworth Acres. So that's the Wilson Road out here uh, across from the Blue Sky drive-in that development back in there and it's called the Wilson development because a realtor in Ritman with the last name of Wilson he and some others bought the old Mills farm and lotted it off and that's how it got its name so it was old Augustus Mills pioneer who cleared that land from the ancient forest to the farmland and then eventually into a development uh, it talks about the Highland Park Heights allotment. So that would be Highland Avenue, but north of Akron Road. So back in there, that was the old Browse Farm. So all the heights, you know, we always called it the Highland Heights or the Crestview Heights or whatever. And page 265 talks about the Westgate allotment down by um, Tailgaters down there on College Street across from the colony. And uh, that was the old uh, Ringer's property. Mr. Ringer had a large um, orchard down through there. And I think Fixler Agency bought, bought his uh, farm. And they used to have Ringer's Market that was right next to Tailgaters. Now, I don't know, it's some kind of body shop in that building. And, of course, how many people remember the Cook's Drive-In that used to be wedged between <laughs> Tailgaters and the Ringer's Market? It's hard to believe that that parking lot had a little drive through restaurant in it. Then um, Clearview Acres out uh, south of town. That was developed with various people involved. So they bought one of the old razor farms out there. Now, of course, that's gotten even more developed out there. I may remember the legend of Sadie Razor. Sadie Razor's old place. She wasn't part of Clearview Acres. It was still... That was still in there, the razor possession. But I know people who lived out in Clearview Acres who saw that house burned down. So if you've ever been on Wall Road and you get to that extreme uh, bend in the road, Sadie Razor's place was up in the woods above it, and that's where people like you made out in the driveway. <laughs> that, that's where all the young couples would go go and park either in the driveway or drive up there and 
then if uh, if they saw her come out, they freaked out. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of legends about uh, her and being a witch or whatever. And and she was just an old maid that lived back there by herself. And uh, and probably a lot of you know the Razor family in town, uh, Ruby Razor. That would have been her husband's something or other. But, uh, yeah, she was quite the legend. And I think the one story goes that uh, there was another f- family that lived out there. And I don't know whether they saw her out and about one day or if they went back there. And the one lady said, oh, don't look at her or something bad is going to happen. So don't look at her in the face, blah, blah, blah. Well, uh, the lady was with child at the time. And she looked at her, and when the child was born, it, it was very uh, handicapped oh, and kind of bedridden. And the claim was it's because she got that curse from uh, Sadie Razor because she looked at her in the face. And, uh, and they held by that story, I guess, for the, because that was the best excuse to explain why this child was so disabled. Okay, well, I digress. Clearview Acres, Razor Farm, and that looks like the uh, looks like the Frankenstein allotment, but it's uh, Frank and Helen, I believe. It was the Leathermans that do, that had that, and it's there at the three-way stop again out by the hospital. And when you drive down that road, you have Donna, you have Peggy Drive, and you have. Um, Oh, what's the other one? I think it's just a orchard name. Yeah, because it was an apple orchard. I think they called it app. Um, oh, Apple Drive. Yeah. So Peggy and Dawn, they were the daughters of uh, the Leathermans. So they named the streets after them in their development. And Dawn, maybe some of you knew her. It was Dawn Houston who taught at Lincoln School. So it was her dad that developed it. So anyway, uh, Maylon Avenue, it talks about that. Um, the West Park Acreage Allotment. See, you didn't know all these allotments had names. So the West Park, I call that the Shakespearean area of Wadsworth because all the names of the streets are kind of sh- related to Shakespeare. Uh, Stratford, Avon. So all those back in there, those late 50s. So the Valley View Allotment is up around Valley View School. And um, that allotment extended from where the newest you know, Masonic Temple is. Right next door to them was the Hall Farm. And it extended all the way to Leatherman Road. So the, they were in the process of lotting this all out, only to find out that the uh, Route 76 was coming through. And it cut off the back part of their, their property. The, the property that faced uh, Leatherman Road. Anyway, but that whole area, West Good Avenue, Valley View Drive, not Wolf Avenue, that, that's another allotment, but Baker Street, all those down through there. And again, they extended all the way to Leatherman Road, and across the highway it got developed differently, obviously, because it, uh, they, you, can't, you couldn't have through streets going that all the way over. Okay, and uh, yeah, and then they sold off part of it to for the Valley View Park, obviously the schools, 
Noel Woods, another one that's part of that. And then you had Orchard Street down through the valley. That talks about Hillsdale allotment. So you're probably familiar with it right off of uh, Treese Road. And by the way, the Treese Farm was the, one of those older houses on the west side of Treese Road. And it has a big boulder in front out by the road. So that's why I recognize it as the big rock. It would be between College Street and uh, I think it's right past Hillsdale. Yeah, I think it's between the stop signs. Okay. Or pretty close. On the east side or the west side? It's on the west side. And yeah, you probably never noticed that big granite rock. Now you'll see it every time you drive by. I do. And it gets annoying after a while. But interesting enough, you know, those pieces, uh, well, it's a granite rock. So, you know, it's from Canada. All those huge rocks that uh, maybe you find them in your yard. But if you come across granite rocks, they're a result of the glaciers that pushed them down into Wadsworth. They're not um, common to hear. You know, sandstone, yes. But those big rocks like that. So I think they found it back on their farmland and hauled it up by the road. But it helps me identify their house. Uh, Skycrest up there on top of the Mennonite Hill. That was part of the um, Colert Farm. You know, they owned a lot of property. They still do uh, in that area of town. So it's at the crest of the sky. Then we have Marlowe. Uh, nothing exciting about Marlowe. Uh, Crestview allotment. That was part of the old uh, donor farm. Then you have Fixler East Estate. Oh, back in those days, again, this was written in 1964. So they didn't have the name for the Fixler East allotment. Now we know it is High Point. They named it eventually. So the High Point area was that. And I think I mentioned this before that, you know, if you go into High Point and go down to the very bottom, which is Far Avenue that crosses down through there. That was probably the closest coal mines to the village in its day. Hmm. So down through that, that valley, um, they, they had a railroad spur that went from there. So basically it's around Durling Park, just to the east of Durling Park. And if you drive some of those, like off of Oak, and drive down, what is it, Brookwood? There's a side street there, a dead-end street. If you drive down there, you can kind of see in the valley where that trestle, or that, uh, where they would have run the rail spur. And every once in a while, somebody comes across a piece of the old spur. But generally, those were portable tracks, so they set them down and had them mount, mounted for the time. But then if they wanted to do another spur and they were done getting the coal out of that area they would take the things up and haul them away because they did find that bridge uh, when they were doing the Bent Creek development there on 261 and they freaked out when they came across this bridge out in the middle of nowhere crossing a creek but it was part of the railroad spur that went through Durling Park and just followed the valley because of course trains really can't go uphill or downhill nicely they have to have a very small grade so the natural place to put a railroad is where water flows as long as there's no waterfall <laughs> so they fo followed where 
um, the Derling Park Creek, you know, that if you head south, it goes down long, or it goes under East Street, goes under the, uh, it, the old Ohio injector. Now there, there were waterfalls in its day um, before they built the factories. But we didn't have spurs that ran down there. And I did read the other day or came across, and maybe I said it at the last one, that Joe Bender, that he purchased that uh, piece of property. If you go down East Street and then you get to Water Street, it makes an intersection. And if you look, it looks like there's a stub of a street that continues there for a few feet. Well, he owned that property and he gave it to the city of Wadsworth with the intentions that they would build a bridge so that you wouldn't have to wait at the railroad tracks. You could just drive over uh, the train tracks. And I just wonder if it's still in the books that uh, he donated that to the city and they didn't do anything with it. Maybe I could stir up another hornet's nest. Not that we need another one in town. So um, and now we get back to the match company again. And it talks uh, from page 272 to 275 talks about the modern match company. So again, that's what I'm saying is this book gets so weird because it this is like the third time they mention the match factory and they give you history more of it chronologically in this time period as opposed to giving it to you all at once at the beginning. And so talks about that, talks about the box board down in Ripman. And uh and how PCA bought it, Hunt, Hunt Wesson Foods bought the match company, um, Morton bought, bought the Ohio Salt Company, Morton Salt, and then the Packaging Corporation of America bought the Ohio Box Board, they called it PCA, and the last injector on page 276 talks about the history of the Ohio injector, the last actual injector that they made was in 1956 because after that they totally went obscure but they were still making injectors up to that point of course by then they had converted most everything over to making turnoff valves and the smallest valve they made was one eighth of an inch long it was more like a stem valve like for tires and the largest valve they made was seven foot tall so they had quite a production line quite a variety uh so it talks about that under the ohio uh injector then it talked about the barefoot soul company which is now the um uh there at the end of first street the goldstein and uh whatever whoever but one of their biggest products which i just learned recently was their Attachable white walls to tires. Quarter walls. walls. Yeah. See, you guys are older than me. I don't remember that. <laughs> but, you know, I guess they were popular. They were very popular over in England. So they shipped a lot of these products over to England or Great Britain. Did you guys own or see them? Oh, yeah. How did they, how'd you attach them? Under the rim, under the rim, yeah. Okay. Put them on before you inflate it, and it's stick. Then just stick in there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, but it said uh, 
the Glitter Ring White Wall Topper product of this firm won top awards in the 1963 National Automotive Accessories Parts Exhibit in Los Angeles. So there you go. You can read up on it on 277. That talks more about the Wadsworth Foundry that was there behind the, well, down on Auble Street. Pontiac store. Yeah, <clears throat> the old Pontiac store. Gosh, I thought I added a picture here. Oh, okay. I, I'm going to jump in on this one because we just got this donated to the uh, museum. And I'd never seen this postcard. This is the old powerhouse, which part of the building is still there. It's at the corner of uh, Auble and Broad Street. So this is when it was actually a powerhouse. But what I found interesting about this picture is if you look here on the right hand, lower right-hand corner, you can see it is a um, railroad car full of coal. So they must have had a little spur. So this spur crosses and goes over to Sacred Heart Church. You know, they finally covered it up after all these years. And here's that round... Uh, uh, where they treated the water. That ring used to be there for a long time, at least when I was a kid. But this is a spur that then heads north and crosses, goes through where the church is, goes through Durling Park and up through Bent Creek. So, again, the spur was just, uh, they'd have an engine pulling, you know, a couple of cars and would go up to the north end, collect the coal, and then push it back down to the main lying down in the south end of town and get it on its way. And with the Wadsworth Brick and Tile Company being news here lately with the city purchasing that property, page 279 gives you the history. Hey, Roger. Hey. In that powerhouse, the first part of that building, is that, the old, is that where the water department is? Yeah, what do they... I guess they call it the water department. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the... Yeah. It's just amazing that that old brick building is still there. Yeah. But you know what? It's like the flare plant. It's still st standing. Oh, and by the way, I did come across um, when I was reading about the Lutheran Church for the hundredth time going through this book <laughs> that the brick that they used it was made in the Wadsworth Brickyard. Yeah, I didn't realize that because uh, it seemed like a unique brick, but they could do that back then, especially in order that big. So that and the match company and central school, uh, the injector company. So a lot of them utilize the brick here in Wadsworth. Um, J.C. Whitlam, again, they are the oldest manufacturing company in Wadsworth uh, to this day. All the others have changed out and done something different in their history. So kudos to them. H.J. Hall Trunk Trucking Company, again, that was behind the Marathon Station. It's long gone. And the Ohio Edison Company's Star Substation. That's the one out there on Silver Creek next to the railroad tracks. And so it's been around a long time. Uh, Wadsworth Chamber of Commerce. Well, kind of talks about the history of its beginning. And Wadsworth Development Corporation, nothing exciting in there, but you can read up on it. Remington Products, that was down there on uh, Bergie Street originally, and then they moved out to Seville Road, I believe. Mm -hmm. 
and now I forget what they call it now. Western Roto, that was on Bergie. IMC on page 285, that was there on Bergie. The National Guard Armory, Company B, that was out there on Bergie Street. That building's still there. Again, a lot of these are just, uh, well, Luke Engineering. That's another oldie but goodie that's still in town. And that's on page 286, 287. Uh, Doors Incorporated, you probably remember that. So there's uh, interesting some of these tiny companies that we once had here. And again, oh, and Ed Mobley. I know I graduated with his son, and I didn't realize, you know, what he did was he was the creator, designer, and engineer of toys and even Disney characters. So, pardon? Uh, Ed, Ed Mobley. He called it the Ed Mobley Company. And, uh, yeah, he he made, like, little cartoon figures, which we don't have any in the museum. It would be interesting to have something like that. But it sounds like, like a large, small business to me. And let's see. I think I'm going to end there because we still have one more session, and I want to have something to go over. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and would like to thank you for listening. You can contact us or find more information on this topic, as well as many other resources, at wadsworthlibrary.com.